listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. It is Mental Health Awareness Month and it is Mental Health Monday here on The Coffee Hour for our last Mental Health Monday with Heidi Gaiman for this school year, mm-hmm. I should say. We're wrapping up the school year. I don't know. Do we graduate, Heidi, when we're done with our conversation <laughs> for today? Maybe once those emotion stickers are made, then it'll be like, I did it. (laughs) Yes. More stickers. Everyone needs more stickers. That's right. I understand. I understood my emotions today. Yes. So we have... We have a topic I think is going to be very helpful to many. I just reading over some of the content you've written on this, I found very helpful. And that is autism and neurodiversity and what that means for emotions as well. Let's start with misconceptions that we might have. And I know you you shared in your writing that you had misconceptions about autism and neurodiversity. What misconceptions might we have about these topics, autism and neurodiversity? I think our number one misconception about neurodiversity is that it looks a certain way, that we have a picture in our head. And I think it's complicated because we all might have a little bit of a different picture in our head, but at the same time, it's a pretty dramatic picture usually. Neurodiversity is a new term also, a newer term, if you will, and I'm really thankful for it. I love when we find language that works for us better than what we had before. And neurodiversity honors the fact that people think and process things differently in their brains, in their bodies, in their mental and emotional health. And so that is replacing or is a really bigger umbrella, I would say, than what we think of as autism spectrum. That's also, there's been some changes to that language as well, which we can get into. But if you look at neurodiversity, it's a gift that we needed so that we could understand that the processing differences that exist, the thinking and feeling and like physical, but also relational differences that exist in neurodiversity are not just given to autism or autism spectrum. Whereas formerly, I think when you think of neurodiversity, you think of autism, we picture this idea of autism that's quite dramatic, maybe verbal or nonverbal, but is absolutely unemotional, I think is really especially an old idea of autism spectrum. Maybe that's me putting my story into it too much, but I think for so long, that was a picture I know that I had in my head and I had even worked with a large clientele population that at this point in my career, I would be like, oh, (laughs) that's also autism or that's also neurodiversity that I don't know we had that in the 90s, in the early 2000s. I don't know that we had that language for it. And so, yeah, I don't know. Do you guys have some things that you think of that you picture? That's I always think of that dramatic emotional and social contrast when I think of neurodiversity, like a, a a lack or quote unquote, I don't believe this, but like a failure of relational skills, essentially. Mm. Yeah, that sounds familiar. I always, I shouldn't say always, it's a very broad generalization. I I seem to pick up on a bit of a theme that neurodiversity also goes hand in hand with being very especially brilliant at a certain 
tr- skill or or ability to do Savant. something. There, yeah, there's always yeah. there seems to be this 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 heightened ability to do something that I think is is really cool about neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is an interesting thing, too, because which I think has begun this trend because that is a little of a misconception that, oh, you're neurodiverse. You must have some kind of savant ability. Like, what's your special skill? And don't get me wrong. Like there there is some of that. But at the same time, we all have special skills and that can come in neurodiversity and non-neurodiversity. But there's also this like both pressure for people who are neurodiverse to like fulfill some kind of weird expectation but also then people seeking neurodiversity or the concept of neurodiversity because they want to have this something special. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's become a really complex ball of yarn in our culture, the concept of neurodiversity, which is honestly, I see it as a positive thing because that means that we're not oversimplifying it anymore. Like mm. that question of misconception, I think thankfully is becoming a little bit unraveled already because we know it's more complex than that. We just don't know what that means. Yeah. That's interesting because, sorry, <laughs> that I've noticed a lot more lately, I don't know, in the past few years, a lot more TV shows and, and drama television shows that, that have neurodiverse characters. And it's interesting how they're portrayed and who they choose to be the actors for those characters and how, how that kind of has shaped also how we view neurodiversity just in our, in our daily lives, too. No, absolutely. And I'm really thankful because I, we have neurodiversity in our household. And when I, we first encountered it, I was definitely terrified of it, which says a lot because I like to think of myself as a very, you know, diverse thinking individual and open-minded in some ways. Like I'm a social worker and I, I, I feel like as a mom, I should consider that I have the skills to be able to encounter this at home as much as I do in my office. But at the time, it didn't feel like that. It felt overwhelming and scary. And so because of that picture of neurodiversity in my, I had in my head. Now that said, my experience of neurodiversity has been very eye-opening and I think has, like Andy said, allowed me to do a lot of writing with my child's permission on what it actually means to be neurodiverse and to be particularly on autism spectrum and to allow that to be a wider lens for people. There's all kinds of different neurodiversity. And in fact, now we know that ADHD is also grouped underneath or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or formerly known as ADD is also within that. That is within the neurodiversity umbrella as well because What neurodiversity means is that you process things outside of the box of what our traditional, essentially educational settings have designed to be geared towards, right? Like that's the point of neurodiversity. It's interesting. I think this is one benefit of like homeschool community is that though they are naturally usually attuned to neurodiversity in a homeschool group or in a family that's doing homeschooling because you're looking at a very individualized education. Our public education system, our parochial education system are such gifts for families. Like these are really important parts of being in a developed world is having education available. However, when we try to fit people into a box, that's when we start to notice deficits or disorders because we need you to fit into a box. That doesn't necessarily 
mean there's something wrong with you. It means that you don't necessarily fit the systems we've set up for you. And that might be my TED talk for the day on diversity. <laughs> um, but I do think we have to understand those systemic aspects of it as well before we get into the like individual aspects of it. From like a 30,000 foot view, what help us understand autism or neurodiversity and how that might affect how one processes or senses and, and sensory issues? Mm -hmm. Sure. So neurodiversity is that bigger umbrella. And so I'll let you Google that if you want to know what all is involved in neurodiversity. But it is basically that there is a different processing mechanism at play in the way that people understand emotions, relationships, communication, and the way that the nervous system encounters the world, essentially. Because that's one way, right? We've talked about that at length in our emotion series. Like we sense things, we take things in both internally and externally, and then we process that. It sends signals to our brain. We try to understand it, fit it into the puzzle that is our context and how things make sense. And then we act accordingly. All of that is experienced a little bit differently in the concept of neurodiversity. Now, help. let me help you understand that it's not black and white. It's not like this is regular processing over here and over here is neurodiverse processing. And I, I just need to ju judge which one they're at. No, instead, neurodiversity assumes that this gigantic umbrella means there's going to be thousands and millions of ways to process. And it's a very kind of individualized approach. That said, with a reasonableness that there are things we know that lean toward health for humanity and things that lean away from health for humanity. So we do use some generalizations, right? Like connection matters. People need connection. How do I help you get connection in your life would be a generalization. Whereas how we do that might look different in neurodiversity than how it would look with, oh, now I lost the term. What is the term when you're not neurodiverse? Anybody remember? No. There's no. terminology for that. Someone look it up on the internet. There's <laughs> terminology for that. Um, Average? <laughs> yeah, right. No, it was like bad helpful. Like we don't believe in normal, right? I would mm -hmm. say one benefit of neurodiversity, and this is part of the debate, is like we're all neurodiverse. Like we all process things kind of different, but within these generalizations, but there are going to be challenges. I mean, I think that's what you're talking about, Andy, is like, what are the challenges that happen with neurodiversity that goes outside of the boxes of norm of our society and the culture around us? And so underneath neurodiversity, we have people relationally and sensorily processing in different ways, emotionally processing in different ways. And in that is specific diagnoses that we have in the DSM five or yeah, we're in the DSM five now. I'm like, which number are we on now? <laughs> but that would helps us to understand that processing mechanism happening for a certain group of people. So autism spectrum is one. There is a reason it's called spectrum because autism itself isn't even experienced the same by each or by the whole class of individuals. Instead, we have like high functioning to low functioning where it's harder. That doesn't mean there's something like more wrong with that person. It's that it's harder for them to engage in the cultural and the educational context or even the job, the employment context, the life context in front of them. Whereas high functioning, it's easier for them to engage 
in kind of the mainstream context. So autism spectrum. ADHD is also underneath that, like I said, with another different diagnosis. But there, both of those things have this other kind of massive overlap that we would call like sensory processing disorder if we were doing a diagnosis with it or sensory processing challenges. We all have a nervous system and a sensory processing system inside of us and it matures at different rates. In the same way that we develop at different rates, so does our sensory system. And so I would say I have very rarely seen someone who is neurodiverse in a distinct way that needs some services for it or needs some help navigating that, that does not have some sensory processing struggles. However, outside of that umbrella, a lot of us also have sensory processing struggles. So the beauty of neurodiversity in that language now is that we have more language for sensory stuff and all of us can benefit from identifying the way our sensory system is maturing in each of us instead of just being kind of unaware or vaguely aware of that. So the word that we were looking for is not neuroaverage, but what is it, Sarah? <laughs> neurotypical, is that what we were looking for? Neurotypical, yes, yeah. Credit to Google. <laughs> Thank you, Internet. We are talking about neurodiversity on Mental Health Monday today. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Mental Health Monday, and we are wrapping up a full season of topics and emotions with Mental Health <laughs> Monday and Deaconess Heidi here. And we are talking about neurodiversity today sure. and how uh, understanding neurodiversity. We've talked a little bit about what, what that means in terms of sensory or processing. What, mm-hmm. might that, what might neurodiversity or autism look like whether it's you know for a parent experiencing that with a child for the first time or, or, or maybe observing something in public, what might neurodiversity look like to help us understand that better? Well, and especially within an emotional context, since you know we especially started this off of emotions in the gospel, mm-hmm. is that because our emotional processing is a sensory experience, like where we take in information from the outside or the inside— the emotional component of it is going to be kind of mishmashed with those sensory processing things. So a lot of times you'll see with neurodiversity, emotional overload or that sense of overwhelm comes very quickly or very dramatically because the sensory system is sensitive to outside or internal information being given and then it very quickly builds up like we talked about emotional stacking and other episodes for all of us are layering when your sensory system is immature it will it will kind of go off quicker because it's just stacking so quickly 
And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's a really lovely thing to have a sensitive system because usually this leads to a different kind of empathy. You know, you often see neurodiverse individuals be very, very in tune to like animals and taking care of animals, taking care of the environment, very in tune to whether someone's hurting. But there's this relational component to neurodiversity that we see then also which is a little bit of a challenge reading, like normal social cues and stuff, which this is especially true in autism spectrum, but I definitely see it in ADHD and other neurodiversity as well, where relationship and social communication, it doesn't just come naturally to any of us, really. Like it's a learned, taught thing, right? I think there are aspects we think that are natural and while connection is a gift from God, like how it happens is something that we learn in our families and structures. And so we're going to be greatly impacted by that. Um, but for some of us, it's simply harder to read, again, because often of a sensory challenge where we are reading people's communication structures or facial cues and tone very differently. And so one challenge I think you'll notice out there, if you will, in the world often is a more concreteness or a literalness in people who have autism spectrum in particular. And then with people that are neurodiverse with ADHD, you often notice a bit of a chaoticness, if you will. So like that hyper focus and also hypo focus where it's very challenging for them to kind of be in the middle to see what you're saying and meaning and doing and focus on that single thing and hold it lightly as well. Neurodiversity tends to come with a heightened sense of shame, which I'd love to research for my doctoral work at some point, but that I see very frequently in neurodiverse individuals. And I do think that has to do with both having challenges reading the social cues, as well as the sensory sensitivity component, as well as the shame of not being able to fix it and not being able to find an easy answer to it. This is one reason why normalizing neurodiversity is so important because, you know, social stuff, it's just hard. Like I meet with especially my middle schoolers who are neurodiverse and they're really in that heart of starting to do a lot more socially on their own and trying to navigate relationships. And I'm like, hey, guess what, you guys? This is really challenging for everyone around you. Let's talk about how it's challenging for you so we can help you, but know that it's not just you. What does that feel like for kids who are experiencing, or kids who, who have neurodiversity, are, are, are autistic, what is that, what might that feel like for them as they're experiencing all of these things around them? Yeah, okay, so you know, we talked about the sensory stuff that's like hyper, like extra sensitive, but that also comes with the hypo, or like a lack of sensitivity too. And I think oftentimes that's what's happening with the social skills. And so I think that one thing I see in neurodiversity, and I don't have the research I can pull right now in this moment for this, so I'd have to look it up for you, but there is this often challenge to read their own emotions. Like that is a built skill for all of us, but I think honestly the sensory component of emotion is dimmed in this kind of particular processing of neurodiversity often, or other specific emotions and the way that our brain reads them and like literally feels them inside of our body with our nervous system might be elevated. And so there's this very challenging um, 
component of treatment of neurodiversity because some people might feel overwhelmed by their emotions. So other people might have very little awareness of their emotions. And then often there's the exchange of both at any given time. And we're looking basically for freeing people to have that emotional awareness without judgment. Like, you know what? How about if we just start with naming the emotion we're having? There's no judgment here. And then we move toward learning how to interact with them, how to read them and other people and things like that. And so I think the answer to your question, Sarah, is confusing. It's just very confusing. Again, because we're reading it within our body as well as other people and trying to gain skills in doing that. I think we all need the skills, like I said, but I think that kids, especially who are neurodiverse, really, really need some extra support in doing those skills because it's going to take them a little bit more time depending on how their system processes things. So let's say, hypothetically, you're a parent, you're starting to grasp an understanding of neurodiversity. You have a child that experiences neurodiversity. Now you're in a setting where you feel that maybe you're being judged about your parenting because of your child's neurodiversity for whatever reason. Maybe they're having an experience that you know, strong emotions or, or very expressive emotions in a setting where expressive emotions aren't necessarily welcome and you feel like you might be judged for that or your parenting might be judged. Any tips for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is a great place to go to my website for articles because it's maybe one of my favorite topics to talk about that sense of judgment in living with a neurodiverse child. I think back to our favorite word from the last three episodes is projection. Like know what are your emotions and your sense from people coming into you and as well as what your child is experiencing and helping define and with them what they're experiencing. And so very often that sense of judgment is either real and my job is to shield my child from it in some way, shape or form. I mean, really, that that's an adulting sticker right there. Shielding my child today from the world's judgment, right? Like <laughs> that is a gift of parenting that's hard and it's really challenging to know when and how to engage in that Uh, or that judgment is perceived and that's some of my internal stuff right and being able to define that for myself instead of project my anxiety on a child who's already overwhelmed in the moment is really important with neurodiverse kids i really recommend parents if your child is getting services of some kind speech and language ot counseling, social skills. How about we go ourselves as parents? Because there is a lot to sort through when you're trying to help a child that's a little different than you expected, but that you want to honor and love and not add more shame. Getting a place where we can sort through that helps us to not project in those moments and to be able to do the shielding that we need to do, but also be able to enter into their world. So my thing as a parent has always been, and this is what I recommend to my clients, you, your primary concern is your child in that moment. And so enter into their level and their world. We practice first emotional validation, which is like, I see that you are, you know, upset. I see that you're overwhelmed. Is that correct? Do you feel anxious about something? You ask questions, but you find the emotion of the moment. Maybe this is a gigantic fit on the grocery store store floor, but no shame, sit in that grocery store aisle 
because that's more important than anything else right now. And then you set a boundary, right? So first, emotional validation, connecting with your child in that that's teaching a skill as well as helping them see that they are known and deeply loved. Then you move on to, okay, so this is really not the place to like maybe lay on the floor. So let's, you know, find a place that's better or we need to pick up three more things and then we're going to leave or whatever your boundary is going to be. But first we want to enter into the emotional connection, then validate or then move on to boundary setting. That's hard, right? Like we as parents, we're like, can you get yourself off the floor? Like I cannot do this with you right now. Right. Or with a teenager, you know, we don't talk like that to other people, like keep your mouth closed. Right. Like whatever we are doing. And this is me being very real and honest. <laughs> oh, man, Heidi's at her best self today. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I do think exactly. But that emotional validation piece is not small, both in the knowing factor. Remember Psalm 139, it right, that they are known and still loved by God and by me. And then you do that boundary setting both of those things are skills that you're teaching them in that moment too. How to wrangle their emotions, how to walk through that, as well as how to move on. On the flip side of that, for people who don't have experience with this in their own personal families, how do we love the, the families, maybe in our, in our other circles, in our church families, in our other friend groups? How do we love those people who are dealing with different issues in, the, in their family lives? Yeah, I think the key word here is flexibility. Flexibility, flexibility, flexibility. The more we can offer flexibility in our worship spaces, in our education systems, in our grocery stores, in our social settings, restaurants, whatever, that's going to go a really long way. So I would say, since we're on Mental Health Monday with KFUO, I would speak directly, especially to the church. And there are churches doing amazing ministries with this. You can have a specialized special needs ministry. That's great. But you know what you can do as a church is just to be flexible and see every child, every teen, every person as a valuable component of that body of Christ. And the hand would not say to the ear, I do not need you. And in fact, the weaker parts are worth more than, you know, the very put together parts that are doing their part so, so well. And so giving some flexibility in, I have an article on my website about jumping off the communion rail and allowing my kid who just wanted to take the last communion step after we went up and he got the blessing from his dad to just jump from the last step to the floor. And that was absolutely unacceptable to one of our elders. And as a parent, I had to make a decision and say like, no, this is not the version of the church my kid is going to get. Instead, I want him to have the version that lets him jump off the step because he's so excited about the blessing he just got from Jesus. Again, it is a lot of parenting work, but the supporters around parents can be the people that come in to make that easier. To say, you know what? Like, this is not a big deal, this thing. Or, hey, how can we offer a wider variety of places for people to sit? Or how can we offer different lighting? Or how can we offer a space where people can think differently and say something that might not be quite the way we think about it, but we're willing to listen and hear and engage? Any kind of flexibility we can add to our spaces is supporting neurodiversity. You can read more at HeidiGaiman.com. Thanks for the insights you've provided for us on neurodiversity today and for mental health throughout this year, Heidi. 
always, I always learn a lot when we have great conversations with you. Thanks for being a part of the Coffee Hour and Mental Health Monday this year. Hey, thanks for having me. I would love to hear any feedback. So if anybody wants to send me a note at HeidiGaiman.com under the contact or connect page, or if they send them over to you, I think we'd love to hear what people learn this year. Certainly, you can also email us coffee at KFUO. We're happy to pass those messages along. Thanks so much, Heidi. And thanks for joining us for the Coffee Hour today. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere.